Welcome to another Summer 23 Reprise episode of Dementia Dialogue. Following upon a new episode of the Rike Center's efforts to create a more comfortable space for 2S LGBTQ residents, we are featuring two previous episodes on the same theme. This is the second reprise, which was originally episode 54 in our series. Welcome to Dementia Dialogue. My name is Elaine Weersma. I am an associate professor in the Department of Health Sciences and a researcher with the Center for Education and Research on Aging and Health at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Our Dementia Dialogue podcast series allows those with lived experience, care partners, experts, and advocates the opportunity to share their stories with each other and with a broader community. Dementia is more than being forgetful. Dementia is a very misunderstood condition. And one of the best ways to challenge the stigma and misunderstanding of dementia is to hear the stories of those living with this condition. Welcome to this episode of Dementia Dialogue and the second in the series focusing on 2S LGBTQ issues. My name is Pat Shanahan and in this podcast I am talking with Maggie Perquin who is the carer for her wife and partner of 27 years. Maggie is going to share some of her experiences with us. Hello Maggie, thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to have this opportunity to talk with you a bit about your experience as a member of the 2S LGBTQ community and being a carer for uh, your person with uh, dementia. So I think maybe uh, the best thing for us to do right now is just to start off with asking you to give us an introduction of yourself and we'll take it from there. Okay, I'm really glad to be here. Um, Any chance to share the story, I I welcome very much because I think that talking about dementia is an awkward enough conversation. Talking about being a lesbian with a person that I care for with dementia adds another level of awkwardness. And so the more we can have these conversations, hopefully the less awkward they'll be. So I'm glad to be here, Pat. Thanks for asking me. I am a retired teacher. I retired three years ago when... Uh, Ruth's diagnosis became clear and the pathway forward was going to be somewhat different than what we had imagined for my retirement. And so I did retire a couple of years earlier than I had anticipated it. I am passionate about education in all its forms, whether it's to little people, big people, old people, doesn't matter. And so anytime we can gain information, that's really important and really helpful and insightful for people. That's something that I I really enjoy participating in. I am a very proud Nana of nine grandchildren, um, most of whom were homeschooled during the the COVID pandemic. And so uh, I'm lucky enough that they came in threes and so I have three kids in grade four and three kids in grade six and so I would run you know grade six math at 9 30 and they would log in by zoom so that was fun because I was just recently retired I still had all my resources so that was really neat to do that with the kids um, you just can't stop also, teaching eh <laughs> no, never but that's also what keeps me you know being comfortable presenting I think in front of other people about delicate subjects sure. um yeah so <clears throat> I'm very pleased to be here and um 
Ruth and I have been uh, together. We've been together for 27 years um, as a couple. We obviously, this is a second relationship for both of us. We both came out of a primary marriage after a number of years. And um, together we have uh, 15 grandchildren, um, some of whom are more connected than others. But it's becoming clear that our relationship is an influence in the grandchildren's lives and in the decisions that they are making about being accepting and and welcoming and being safe people and also in their own journey of their own developing sexual orientation um it they are very clear with us that our relationship is an impact for them in a positive way and uh, and so that's always very life-giving to hear that Ruth's diagnosis has been a long one let's just say that she started worrying about her memory about 12 years ago and her mom had Alzheimer's and passed away at the age of 78. Um, an aunt also had Alzheimer's and passed away just over 80. Um, and Ruth was very concerned about memory retrieving names. And she's a stickler for names. She remembers names from, you know, way, way, way back. Retrieving names, um, language was becoming a difficulty for her in terms of structuring things. Writing emails was becoming more of a challenge, those kinds of things. Ruth is also a retired teacher and a language guru, I will say. Um, she's a butt kicker of a word game player and, you know, those kinds of things. So has a very good grasp on English language and um, was finding it a bit of a struggle. So our first official appointment with the Aging Brain Clinic at Parkwood was 12 years ago. So then every two years after that, we were seen and always they were saying, you know, all the tests that they do on people, the cognitive tests that they do, her scores were not changing. But I started to say, but this is a difficulty. Things like multitasking, cooking with a recipe, for example, if she got interrupted in that process was becoming an issue. And, you know, what, what is that? If the, if the language scores aren't changing, what is that? And so I just began probing and questioning more and giving um, examples. And so one of the things that's become important to me is keeping a, a log basically of certain episodes or certain events that happen that trigger me and say, wow, that's weird. Like she's a fusser, fusser about food being put away and yet food's being left on the counter, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. Just trying to notice those significant behavior changes. And the other thing that I really began to notice was her, I will say, outlook of our relationship was, was changing. It was like our relationship was no longer the primary relationship in her life. She was spending much more time and much more energy with her siblings and family of origin and going back to that, which in hindsight makes a whole lot of sense. Because as you're losing your grasp of being able to deal with the current, the, the past is comfortable, it's secure, you know it well. And sure. so that it makes a lot of sense, but, but understand that that was about a four year process itself. Okay. And so uh, from our initial visit to diagnosis was eight years. You know, so Ruth ultimately was diagnosed at first with mild cognitive impairment, which is where most people start. And we all have cognitive impairment as we age. And so there's a spectrum of age related. And these are different things where normal daily routines are now being impacted by the person's inability to grasp whatever it is, whether it's the process, whether it's the memory of how to whatever. Um, and every type of dementia will present differently. And so I've learned all of that along this 
long journey as an educator. I'm always at a quest for learning more, uh, but I ask questions. And I guess that's the biggest thing that I would really encourage people to do if they start to notice changes in the person that you know they're worried about is to ask questions what is normal and even if you're not asking a medical practitioner ask other people you know have you seen this like yes it's normal in days when you're really tired to put the cereal in the fridge and the orange juice in the cupboard like we've all attempted that more than once in our <laughs> life you know but when that starts happening a little bit regularly or when a new container needs to be opened and she doesn't know how to open it anymore you know things that are beyond normal just moments of stupidity or senior moments as we can call them right um it, ask questions seek it out you want to start early before you know it really becomes baffling it becomes an issue in the relationship so yeah so then ruth was officially diagnosed in 2018 and uh in January of 2018 with malcognitive impairment and right away the aging brain clinic said to us you need to connect with the Alzheimer's Society and so that sort of started a whole new journey for us but yeah it's not a slow for us it was not a slow uh, it was a slow process it was not quick it was not sudden and for most people that I've talked to none of this is sudden there are right. things happening over the course of years that you wonder about and say oh that was just a moment when in hindsight says okay that's how it starts. You know? The diagnosis kind of pulls yeah. it all together, right? Yeah. And says, oh, now the penny has dropped. I understand why all of this stuff has been happening, right? Exactly. So our diagnosis now is vascular dementia, which means that the blood supply to her brain is being impacted and ultimately shutting down. Um, and so when she has these cerebral episodes, they, they present as a TIA or a stroke, but in fact, it's just another area losing the blood supply. My experience with the Alzheimer's Society has been life-changing for me, um, but I will also say that even all of our years at the Aging Brain Clinic, we were always open that we were a same-sex couple, that we'd been together, you know, for a long time, that I've been watching this process. There's a, you know, potentially genetic components on, on Ruth's side of the family, or are there kind of was what, you know, my question. So we've been out right from the beginning of this journey. There's never been anything that, that hasn't been open about that. And there was never a question. There was never a look. There was never a, oh, well, maybe you should talk to this person with within the Parkwood Institution. We were completely welcomed and embraced there. The exact same thing happened at the Alzheimer's Society. And I, I said, well, we don't have Alzheimer's. Why are we going there? And, right. uh, they, you know, again, break down the myth, right? It's not just about Alzheimer's. Um, they, they are just a wealth of information, a wealth of education programs for caregivers, for clients, a wealth of support, a very good portal into other resources that extend beyond they, them uh, as well. So she was diagnosed in January. Our first education group we started in April of that year that's called ropes and that's generally the first program where people start that just gives you all of those practical day-to-day -day tools about you know how to deal with this diagnosis and the things that you can do on a daily basis that will make this very manageable and again depending on what your diagnosis is your path will be different uh, for some people it's very quick for some people it's endlessly long you know, the result is all the same, that you are going to lose cognitive function at, at some point and to some degree along this journey. And so those having those tools right from the get go has really, really been helpful. So ROPES is an acronym for, you know, record, organize, right, all of those kinds of things. It was super helpful. That was my first encounter with 
looking around the room full of all the people there at session one and going, okay, we're clearly the only same-sex couple here that never, like, it just never crosses my mind. It just doesn't. It's who we are. We function in the world. It's, you know, it's just who we are. So it never crossed my mind. But I also know that when people begin this journey, their social filters are the, probably the first thing that they lose. Um, being gracious, you know, speaking your mind and whatever. Fortunately, Ruth is a very strong introvert and doesn't really speak in crowds unless somebody asks her directly. But I was worried about some other people's reactions when because we always introduce each self, you know, ourselves as a married couple and uh, who we are. And <clears throat> this is what our diagnosis is. It's been absolutely nothing but but safe and warm and welcoming and loving and encouraging. And um, will you share your story? Because they're very aware that being part of, you know, the LGBTQ plus community has um, a veil of shame attached to it for many people. And then you add a second veil of shame with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or dementia. It's even harder for people to reach out. <clears throat> so I think we've been fortunate that, you know, we've been able to put it out there right from the get-go. Um, there's a video of us talking about our journey and um, describing dementia as an animal. And, uh, you know, that was used as a promotion for the cabin fever reliever a couple of years ago. Yeah. I think we're going to include a link to that near this podcast so that people will be able to watch the, uh, just a, a little bit of that recording or whatever. Right. We've got permission to do that. So. Right, right. Yeah. And I mean, just because we're seeing sex couple doesn't make our journey any different than anybody else. We are still human beings with brains that are being impacted by cognitive impairment, you know? Right. So <clears throat> it's not, it doesn't happen to us differently than it happens to straight people. No, that's <laughs> you know, right. it's exactly but, there, but I think there is an anxiety in the, you know, from those in the community about how, how do I approach this? How do I do it honestly and openly and with, without... Um, fear of some sort of consequence or, or being treated differently if, you know, if uh, people re uh, learn that that we're in a same-sex relationship or yeah. whatever, right? And, um, and yeah. I will say that there is an effort in, in ongoing right now to begin a support group for uh, caregivers of people who are part of the uh, LGBTQ community. We had a first couple of meetings in January and February of 2020, and then guess what happened? <laughs> so, you know, because we've not been able with a vulnerable population, being in person has had much, much more um, high restrictions than the general population. So we have not yet been able to get together. And so we, that is that is in the works as we speak, that hopefully there will be, you know, whether it's called a queer support group for, you know, people with cognitive impairment, whatever, that there will be an intentional support group for members of the LGBTQ plus community. What kind of participation did you have in the, those first couple of sessions with roughly how many people were involved? With the number of people there it represented 16 clients. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. And so that was pretty awesome. Uh, some people were there representing two. For one, it was a partner and um, another an aunt or something like that. Um, it's yeah, we had a couple of people who were there as partners of young onset clients. You know, it's for people who have been vilified in their past because the older generation of the queer community will be that group in many ways. Um, you know, you've already, you've already walked that road. You don't want to go down there again. And so sure. when you have to now say, you know, I have Alzheimer's, um, or I have dementia, you don't, you just don't want to take that on. And so it really is 
Um, we know that we are not the only clients of the Alzheimer's Society who are in a same-sex relationship. We know that, but we're the only ones who are ever at anything publicly. Hmm. And so that's a huge, in 2022, well, and we're right. just starting to come back into being in person together, but that, that just speaks volumes to me. Sure. You know, about the barriers that are there, the whether whether it's barrier, whether it's shame, whether it's lack of information, you know, and so that's kind of been my quest to to enable people to say, look, if we need a specialized group, we'll start a specialized group. If if you're not comfortable coming to the general things, then at least contact me personally, you know, whatever. Um, but again, all of that shut down. And then, of course, there's all the barriers around privacy of information. Sure. You know, so yeah. you can only so that's why I do as many things publicly as I can. Right. And, and it's, it's nice to know that they were that the Alzheimer's Society was receptive to and, you know, obviously encouraging and uh, wanting to expand their outreach to that, that segment of, of the community. And, and there were no questions asked about it. It was a 100% we're behind you. We'll supply the cookies, milk, like what, you know, all that kind of stuff. The one thing we did learn is that we can't house it in the Alzheimer's building because the discomfort of walking under those words for some people is that's a barrier. So it will need to be offsite. Uh, someplace that's neutral, that's safe, you know, which is a, a location yet to be determined. But that was very eye-opening to me, just just the impact that those words have on a number of people, you know, um, right. talking about, there was uh, one gentleman, he and his partner been together for 64 years. Mm -hmm. And he was there and he said, like, why have I never heard of this? Why has this never been, you know, made possible? And unfortunately, by the by the point we were able, we would have been able to again meet in person. You know, it was the the one gentleman was to was in long term care at that point, wow. um, and the decline of the second person was also fairly mm -hmm. significant. You know, but I think there's this myth that you know if you have dementia, you're insane. There are, are movies that have depicted that and and all of those kinds of things. And so let's understand that Alzheimer's and dementia is not insanity. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely not. It's not sudden. It's, it's subtle and it's not curable, but it is treatable. There are certain things that you can do with your lifestyle, with food, with diet, with exercise, with, you know, brain agility to keep yourself healthy, but it's not a hundred percent preventable either. And so I think the more we start to say, you know, Ruth has vascular dementia or, you know, Tom has Alzheimer's or, you know, Nan has uh, uh, Lewy body dementia. Like, I think we need to start naming it, sure. you know, so that it's not the person, it's the disease. They're also then, it also allows you to laugh at some of the ridiculous things that happen. And I think some of the other myths are things like that there's no good side to this. There's absolutely good sides to this. There mm -hmm. are many gifts that come with having dementia. First of all, it simplifies your life because the whole process slows down. And you, you begin to focus on what's important. And for us, pictures are hugely important. Ruth spends hours every day looking through pictures and going back through pictures because many of those events she has forgotten. But when she sees the picture, then the, there's a big smile. And then we have something to talk about. And right. so there's all kinds of gifts based on that. There's gifts of being organized. You become more systematic and organized if you're not that kind of a person. So there are gifts with it. So we don't just look at it as a loss, you know, yeah, yes, that is sort of the predominant thing, but it's not the only thing. And so sharing, you know, those labels of dementia, sharing those labels of lesbian are gifts that come with love, 
They're based mm -hmm. on love and they enrich the world with diversity. I was wondering if you could maybe talk about some of the other resources that you and Ruth have accessed in the community. There may be a couple of other things that, that you've done to, to get support for yourselves, I guess, through, through this process. Unfortunately, with the healthcare system the way it is, the reason I suggest to people, you know, if you start noticing things and you're worried about the, the person's function, you need to get into the medical system early because right now the wait list is incredibly long. But getting into the medical system allows you access to resources that you don't have access to unless you have, you know, had a diagnosis. Um, and so for us, we are when COVID hit, of course, and everything shut down, we know that that lack of social interaction has been huge for people. And so we've been able to access virtual programs. So with a diagnosis, you can become part of the McCormick Home virtual social programs as well. They're all done on Zoom. And again, now that they're getting more back into full, full client load in-house, some of those Zoom programs are being cut back just because of staffing allocations. Many of your senior centers will have, and that that's, again, those are freely accessible programs for anybody, uh, will either offer some form of a, a senior's fitness level that's done, like a seated exercise, for example, either virtually or in person, that, that is free for you to access. So those are, are great as well. And then Age Friendly London, um, has many programs for seniors, particularly through the arts that can be done virtually or, or in person. They're not necessarily directed at those living with cognitive impairment, but they are appropriate. Some of them are appropriate for those mm -hmm. kinds of things. Through the Alzheimer's Society, you do not need a diagnosis. You can call their intake coordinator at the London Middlesex. Well, it's now amalgamated to be called the Alzheimer's Society Southwest Partners. So it includes London, Middlesex, Elgin, Oxford. Okay. Um, you can ask for an intake coordinator and they will have initial interviews with you and then connect you in whichever way seems most appropriate. It, like you don't need to hide. I guess that's what I'm saying. You know, you get, you you have these worries, you have these wonders, you maybe don't have a diagnosis because finding a doctor right now in the wait list at Parkwood to get, you know, diagnosed is very long. Um, but call the Alzheimer's Society and see what they can set up for you as well. And the beauty about the Alzheimer's Society is all of their programs are free. There is no cost to myself as a caregiver or to Ruth as a client. And she will tell you that they are her lifeline. Um, she goes to the social program every every Wednesday morning, and again, that's been deemed an essential service, so they've been operating in person for about the past year. That's excellent. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, because we saw how quickly the decline was happening as soon as all the social contacts were pulled away. Yeah. What have you been doing for yourself, I guess, <laughs> to try and look at uh, opportunities for self-care? So... <laughs> It's, it's hard, especially during COVID, it's been hard because mm. with a diagnosis and Ruth had a fairly significant TIA in March of 2020. So March the 6th, the week before we shut down, that really took out her left side. And so there was a lot of rehab to be done, but then we shut down, the whole world shut down the following Friday. So there was no in-home rehab. You know, somebody came by once and said, here, do these things. So with COVID, it's been really, really hard. And I am an extrovert off the scale. She's an introvert off the scale. Mm -hmm. And so it, I was starting to get really yucky. I was getting out for a walk or, you know, a bike ride in the summer, whatever. Um, but our traveling just stopped. We had two cruises planned, like all of that just stopped, right? And so it's hard 
it's hard to reach out and ask people to come in because with COVID, everybody's just so risk averse right now. Uh, However, as this has gone on long enough, I have a very, very wonderful close group of friends who started to recognize my decline (laughs) and my bitterness and my (laughs) getting out of hand. And they said, okay, you need to get out. What can we do? And I just said, I would love to be able to go back to yoga. Yoga is, it's just because somebody's telling me what to do. (laughs) Oh, you're lying there and peaceful music and it's dark and somebody else is telling you how to move. I'm good with that. Um, And so to be able to get back to that, my friends said, okay, we will come and stay with Ruth because we don't qualify for in-home aid because her needs aren't high enough yet. And yet she can't be left alone. Sure. So that's that's the very frustrating part of this disease um i make sure that i uh, when she sleeps i get out uh because when she sleeps she's safe and she sleeps a lot um so in the afternoon when she's napping i get out and that's when i'll go for a bike ride go for a walk i'll you know meet up with people or i ask people to come and stay with her so that i can get out and you know have a dinner out with a friend or whatever now that we're comfortable having people here then we're you know we're inviting more people in And so that's helpful. Now that programs are starting up again, where the client can go for their part of the program and the caregiver can go for their part of the program. And unfortunately, there's no respite beds. There used to be respite beds before COVID and you could leave people for a weekend or a week or, you know, every one of the nursing homes had one. Most of those, well, in fact, I can tell you, none of those in London have opened again because the the list for long-term care beds is so high right now right. that all of those respite beds have been converted into permanent resident beds. So now I, I get to the gym three days a week and that just lets my brain shut off for that hour. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it turns out to be a couple hours with travel time, but just even to have that, knowing that I have that three mornings a week has been a huge lifeline for me. Gives you something to look forward to yep. in addition to the, the, the break from... Yeah. The constant responsibility, right? Yeah. And, you know, the other piece that I think that in terms of self-care that I've been introduced to that has been critical for me is this thing called ambiguous grief. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Ruth is not dead, but she is in some ways, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's not the same relationship that we had. It's not the same person that I've been with for that long. It's not. And so, you know, how do you grieve? Like, you know, you get a, a terminal cancer diagnosis and you can foresee the end and you get, you know, an ALS diagnosis and you can foresee the end. Well, you get a dementia diagnosis and you can foresee the end, but it can take years, like years, sure. you know, and and so learning to live like and to grieve the losses, you know, and I'm now now just two years after sort of beginning to deal with some of that stuff to the place where I can say, if I can get care for her for a week, I'm going to take a vacation myself with another friend, you know, mm. but that like, it takes a long time to get there. The guilt that right. goes with that on my part. Oh my God, <laughs> let me tell you. But I also am now recognizing that we're still a number of years left in this journey and I need to do this. And, you know, if I'm going to be of any good to her as a wife and care partner, I need to be able to say, yeah, Maggie, it's okay that you're going to go away for a week without her. The first time we're meeting a caregiver, I always call ahead. Like I would never ask my students to stand up and give me a spiel on something they hadn't practiced or been learning about, right? So it's the same thing with a care care provider of any sort, whether it's the um, 
you know, optometrist or the dentist or whatever, I always call ahead and say, this is what's coming. This is what we're dealing with now. This is, you know, we need a little bit of extra space for the walker. She'll need two of us to help her get into the chair, depending, you know, what angle the chair's at, whatever, right? So mm. that I think has also made us very welcomed by our care providers sure. because they're, they're aware of what they're getting into. And I think uh, when we spoke earlier, you mentioned that you also uh, let them know that you you are coming with your wife as yes. well, right? You know, so yeah. that that is not uh, something that is a surprise when you get to the the care situation yes. um, that they know that you're coming yes. as a couple, and I, I think that's that's important, right? Like you Absolutely. Know, you just, you, you, and and important to nor in normalizing uh, the expectations of yeah. uh, of the providers around how, how they manage and treat um, their two SLGBTQ uh, clients and that, right? And I know within our community, there's lots of conversation about what that term should be, you know, mm -hmm. because you're legally married, are you going to use wife or whatever? I have chosen to do it because it cuts through a whole bunch of layers of questions. You know, sure. as soon as I say wife, it's pretty clear, right? Right. And whether I, I wish it could be different or not doesn't matter. I need to get the message home quickly. Mm -hmm. And so for me to say, you know, my wife is living with vascular dementia. We are coming with blah, blah, blah. Um, it just, it cuts through all of those layers immediately. It's a term that people are familiar with. Any advice you might have for others who are, are in your circumstance as a carer, looking after somebody, e either advice for the two SLGBTQ uh, members of, of the community or just advice in general for people that are looking at this as a carer? You know, I guess my first piece of advice is reach out. Do not walk this journey alone because there are, <laughs> you know, 15,000 of us in Southwestern Ontario that are walking it. So you don't need to be alone. Right. Um, within within our community itself, there's definitely not just me, not, mm. not at all. If the first thing you do is call the Alzheimer's Society, call the Alzheimer's Society. And, you know, they the, that's an unknown person to you. There's no emotional connection. There's no history there. Just, you know, find that person. Second thing I would say is if you're that concerned, reach out medically. Egale would be another good website that I would say go to. They've got a lot of stuff going on. Um, they've just written a, a huge paper around uh, long-term care for the queer community and, and aging and share your grief. Like it's a sad journey. There are moments of hilarity. There are moments of, of grace. There are moments of yahoos, you know, but it's sad because this person <clears throat> who you've loved and been with and created life with and family with for years is not there anymore <laughs> but they are right. you know they are um, or they're vanishing in front of your eyes right yeah well and she is literally she's lost two inches and she's really shrunken and you know because that's one <laughs> of the things that goes along with this right but right um, so it sounds like the like the alzheimer's society if you don't have a medical um contact or whatever might be all the best resource then from the yes, from yes. the perspective of doing that connection if you if you don't have any other um resources that you're you're aware of or whatever yes. right yes and mm. depending on where you live your resources may be different right so mm. i mean the alzheimer's society is a national organization but that does not right. mean that there are branches everywhere that's um, true you know so so you just need to be careful about that but there are certainly like seniors if you don't have you know, if you're in a rural, more isolated area and you don't have access to some of those things, I would contact your community center because they mm. should be able to. And again, healthcare practitioners will be able to direct you. Um, Alzheimer's Ontario has a website, and I'm hoping that all of those links will be somehow connected to the podcast. 
Sure. Uh, you know, because depending on where you are regionally, your resources will and may be different. We are right. very fortunate here in southwestern Ontario that we have as much as we do. Well, Maggie, I really want to thank you for uh, joining me today in this conversation and certainly um, your, hearing your experience and learning about what you've been able to do in terms of you know, make, finding resources and coping, I guess, on your, on your own is quite inspiring. And I, I know, uh, I'm sure it's not been an easy uh, four or five years for you since um, the diagnosis. And obviously prior to that with, uh, uh, with the issues that Ruth was experiencing, but you seem to be coming through it quite well and providing some, some uh, very inspirational insight into things. So I really do appreciate you uh, joining me today. Thanks, Pat. I appreciate having the conversation. Like I said, anything to make this um, something that's not so fearful, it would is power to my day. Like that gives me energy a lot. I want to thank Maggie Perquin for generously sharing her knowledge and experience in caring for her wife, Ruth. Please be sure to check out the show note on the website and the link to the cabin fever reliever video with Maggie and Ruth be sure to keep an eye out for future episodes in the 2S LGBTQ series. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us today. Dementia Dialogue podcast is supported by the Centre for Education and Research on Aging and Health at Lakehead University, as well as from the Public Health Agency of Canada, the Dementia Community Investment Project. We are pleased to have received financial support from partners like the Geriatric Health Systems Group at the University of Waterloo, the Centre for Personhood and Dementia at the University of British Columbia, the Ontario Brain Institute, and the Canadian Consortium for Neurodegeneration on Aging for specific podcasts and series. For information on how you can stay connected to Dementia Dialogue, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and through our website, www.dementiadialogue.ca. In September, we are excited to be releasing a new two-part series on the experience of Indigenous communities and dementia, produced with the assistance of the Native Women's Association of Canada. You will hear more from us on this topic as the month approaches. Thank you. My name is David Harvey.